in our Bibles to Romans chapter 6, and continuing our studies in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. Now, on Thursday evening, and, and the recordings uh, on the website, if you weren't at the meeting on Thursday night and you want to listen to it, but on Thursday evening, Jim led us through the second half of Romans chapter 5, and he communicated that we are identified with one of two men. Either we are identified with Adam or we're identified with Jesus Christ. And if we're identified with Adam, all that belongs to Adam, his sin and his guilt and his condemnation and sentence of death, all belong to us then. But if we belong to Jesus Christ, then everything that is his belongs to us. His righteousness, his acceptance before God and his life. And Paul then, he fleshes out in Romans chapter 5 the difference between belonging to each of these men and, and shows that actually in some ways there's a similarity between them. Because what happened was Adam, he committed one sin and thereafter there was this devastating consequence. It was like a bombshell dropping onto the world that affected everything afterwards. But with Jesus Christ... His one act of obedience that culminated in the cross, that was the exact opposite and was like Adam's one act of disobedience, but in reverse. So if Adam's sin was a catastrophe, well, what Jesus Christ did was the exact opposite of that. And then I started racking my brain thinking, well, we've got words for catastrophes and disasters and calamities and I couldn't think of, well, what's the, what's the opposite word? What's the opposite word for a catastrophe? And I couldn't think of one. Uh, we've got words for all the bad things that happen, but not for the immense good things that happen. And at the end of the day, um, the famous writer of The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, he came up with his own word for it. He, he called it a catastrophe. You see, in Greek, if you add the letters E-U to a word, it just means good. And so in psychology, sometimes we talk about stress and use stress, which is a good kind of stress, which helps you mature. And you can talk then about not only a catastrophe, but what Tolkien says is a catastrophe. He says the gospel is a catastrophe. It's something so immense and amazing that hits like a bombshell onto our world, but is full of grace and goodness. And well, for, for Paul in, in Romans chapter 5, Adam's sin was terrible and great, but what Jesus Christ did far outstripped it in its measure and its influence and its greatness. And so he is like Adam insofar as that one act changes everything, but unlike Adam in that it undoes everything. It is so much better. And so Paul concludes chapter 5 by saying, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. It abounded so much more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But the problem is that when you put it like that, some people turn around and say, ah oh, well, Paul, if you're saying that grace abounds over all of our sin, grace that is greater than all of our sin, if you say that, Paul, then that means that sin doesn't really matter, does it? 
It means that you can just live whatever way you like and there's no consequences because grace is so much better and so much greater in its effect than all of our sin. And doubtless, some of Paul's opponents threw this accusation at him and said, Paul, listen, your gospel is just, it's a mess, really. It's not going to produce godly lives. It's just going to produce people that live in sin. And so Paul has to answer that accusation. But again, even for us sometimes, sometimes Satan comes to us and he tempts us and he says, well, you know, you you can do that because after all, God will forgive you. You can do that sin. It's not a terribly big one because God's grace is greater than your sin. And so even for us, then it becomes an issue that we have to grapple with. What's the relationship between what Jesus Christ has done and how we then live our lives? And so this is the issue that Paul has to address in chapter 6. So let's read it together. We're going to just do the first 14 verses and think about what we can learn from them. Paul writes under the inspiration of God, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's ask God to help us understand it. Gracious Father, we thank you for this mighty passage of scripture which teaches us such important truths. There is much in here that's at times difficult to understand, yet truths which are so vitally important. And we ask, therefore, Father, that by your Holy Spirit you would instruct us and help us to understand these words this morning so that we might live faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask this for his sake and glory. Amen. So the very first verse of this chapter, chapter 6, it poses the challenge for us, doesn't it? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And what follows in the the next verses is Paul's very 
tightly woven explanation for why it's inconceivable for a Christian to continue living under sin. And because it is really tightly argued, it can, it can be tricky sometimes to see exactly um, what he's saying and to unpick everything that he's saying here. So let me begin by just sketching out a bit of an outline of the main point that Paul's getting at here. And then we'll go through it and try and unpick it a little bit more just to see what he's saying. Now, one of the big themes in the Bible that I think characterizes the thought of many of the biblical writers, and I think characterizes Paul's thinking here too, is the theme of the Exodus. That theme characterizes so much of their thinking and permeates their language, even if they don't always explicitly make the connection. And you'll remember that way back in the book of Exodus, back at the beginning of Israel as God's people, they were in slavery under this wicked king, Pharaoh, who was brutal towards them, made them labor hard to make bricks and to get involved in his building projects. And so day after day, they were brutally oppressed by this slavery of Pharaoh. And so God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let God's people go so that they would serve him and belong to him. And we know then how Pharaoh, he refused to let the people of Israel go. He didn't acknowledge God's authority until at last then God sends these devastating plagues on the Egyptians. And again and again, Pharaoh says no, until at last God sends the devastating plague where all the firstborn sons in Egypt die and Pharaoh's firstborn son dies as well. And at that point, then Pharaoh reluctantly agrees to let them go. And then they, they leave the land and they reach the Red Sea. And at the Red Sea, they think, this is the end. Our hopes of getting free are dashed until then God opens up the waters and they go through to the other side. And then the Egyptians, they try to follow after them, but then they don't fare so well because God brings these waters crashing back down on them and destroys the Egyptian army. And there on the other side, the people sing praises to God who had set them free. That story then becomes a bit of a template through the Bible for God how it acts in salvation again and again and becomes a template for the ultimate act of salvation that God has accomplished for us because we too were under this terrible oppression uh, this terrible ruler um, sin and, and Paul in this passage he doesn't talk so much about Satan but talks about sin as this force that exists in the world that destroys us and is the consequence of Adam's sin and sin, you see, is this terrible master who likes to lure us in. It, it grabs hold of us and tempts us with things that look so attractive and then lures us into destruction and misery. And so we could describe this state of affairs as the kingdom of sin and death, or what Paul describes here as the reign of sin and death. And we need to be set free from that. So what the Lord Jesus Christ then did was become our deliverer, a greater Moses, as it were. And he comes and he takes the full force of sin and its condemnation and death upon himself and gathers a people to himself that are joined to himself and thus escape from this reign of sin and death. And he leads them to a new kingdom where grace and, and righteousness and life are the dominating forces. 
Uh, like the Israelites who hadn't reached the promised land yet, you know, we have been set free. We haven't reached the final destination yet, but we have been set free. We're on our journey to that final destination, but we are free. We do live under new ownership. And this is what Paul is saying is true for us. He's dividing everything up into two categories. There's the category of being in Adam and the category of being in Christ. There's the reign of sin and death, if you're under Adam, and the reign of life and grace if you're under Jesus Christ. It's two eras, as you were, that overlap in the present time. And what God is doing is then transferring us from one sphere into another sphere, even though at this point in time, the two spheres overlap in this present world. And so Paul's point then is basically this. Because we have been set free and have been brought out of that reign of sin and death to belong to Jesus Christ, then it doesn't make sense for us to sin anymore. We've left that realm. And what follows then in these verses 2 to 14 is Paul's detailed exploration of this momentous claim that we have been set free from sin, that we have died to sin. And so he begins, first of all, in verses 2 to 4 by answering the question of when did this freedom from sin happen? So Paul writes in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul's answer is actually very simple. He says that the occasion when we died to sin was at our baptism. Our baptism then is the occasion when we die to sin with Christ and end our connection with that old world of sin and death. Now this is where it gets a little bit uh, tricky sometimes because sometimes people get a little bit concerned with what Paul might be saying here. See, the Roman Catholic Church, for example, takes these words to an extreme and they would say that it's the physical act of baptism that washes away your sin it doesn't matter too much about whether or not you've actually been changed inside or you've got faith in the Lord Jesus the main thing is have you actually gone through this physical washing that's what washes away your sins and some people are concerned that people could get that impression from what Paul is saying. And so they try to blunt the force of what Paul's saying here. And, and one way of doing that, I think, is to, to say, well, maybe what Paul's talking about here is not, not water baptism, but spirit baptism. Uh, and what's happening is that Paul is saying that it, when we're baptized by the spirit and we're immersed into the life of the spirit, then that's the point at which we die to our old life and live to God. And, and that's that's true in a sense, that is true. The Spirit of God is the person that makes this happen, that causes us to die to sin and to live to God. But if that's what Paul means, then he doesn't, doesn't give much of an indication that that's what he means because he doesn't mention the Spirit of God here. And so I think it's, it's better to just simply see it as referring to baptism, water baptism. Because you see, in the first century, when a person became a believer, there wasn't any gap or 
very little gap between when they trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and when they were actually baptized. The two occurred more or less simultaneously. So take the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, for example. He gets converted that night, and that very night he gets baptized by Paul and Silas. And so there's never much uh, of a break between when a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and when they're baptism. Of course, that, that's slightly different these days, but in the first century that was the case. Because then there was such a close connection, uh, the New Testament writers don't try to pick them apart too much. So today we, we can say to someone, when were you saved? And we expect them to tell us when they were saved. In the first century, you could say that, but you could also say, when were you baptized? And it meant more or less the same thing. It was just the point at which you were converted, the point at which you were identified with Jesus Christ. So baptism was then simply just the outward expression of what happened inside. And to be quite clear about this, it's not that the physical act of baptism actually causes anything to change. Faith alone in Christ is what Paul has been emphasizing up to this point, rather than ritual. So it's faith that actually produces this transformation. But baptism is the outward sign of it, which is why then Paul's talking about this, this outward manifestation, this, this outward demonstration of what's taking place. And, and so the New Testament writers, like Paul, don't try to pick these apart too much. His point then is that what he's describing here, this death to sin and living to God in Christ, isn't something which is just for some special Christians that have had some sort of special experience. It's true for everyone that has come to Christ. Everyone that has come to Christ put their trust in him and been baptized. This is true for them. This is true for every Christian. And so Paul then starts to explain exactly what happened to our baptism. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That is, when you entered into the waters of baptism, you were demonstrating your identification with Jesus Christ when he died. And Paul goes on to say that we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. And so we're submerged into these waters of baptism and that represents our our burial with Christ. There under the waters of judgment we're saying we are with Christ. We are dead to our old way of life, to that old reign of sin and death. And then Paul goes on that this was in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and left that empty tomb, so we also are raised from the water. And it's a sign that we have been raised to a new life, this newness of life that Paul talks about. And so what happens in baptism is an acting out of what's taken place for us. It's an acting out of our death, burial and resurrection with Jesus Christ. But for Paul, this isn't just an empty sign. He's not just saying that that you can just just treat it as an empty vein sort of thing because this is what has actually happened to us. We have actually died with Christ. We have actually been raised with Christ. And this is because we have been joined to Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. So the point is that that there has been an actual change inside of us Uh, It's not just an empty sign. There's been an actual change inside of us at conversion. But the question then remains, 
What exactly does this mean in relation to sin and how we live our lives? Because we say to Paul, okay, you tell us that we've been joined to Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. How does that affect how I live my life? How does that affect my relationship to sin? So Paul continues in verse 5, and he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been, free, has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And so... Having emphasized that we've died with Christ, what Paul's emphasizing now is that we share in this new resurrection life of Christ. I think what he means here is that, yes, we will share in Christ's resurrection life when we're raised from the dead. But I think what he's saying here is that this invades the present, because everything he's talking about here is how we live in this present existence. And he's saying that Christ's resurrection life, that new experience of life, actually becomes true for us in this present age, not just in the future. And so Paul's point is that sin is no longer to be a dominant force in our lives because we share in this new resurrection life of Christ. Uh, But if we share in Christ's resurrection life, it also means, according to verse 6, that we've experienced a kind of death. There has been a kind of death that's occurred for us, and Paul describes it by saying that our old self, or our old man, has been crucified with Christ in order that the body ruled by sin might be brought to nothing so that we'd no longer be enslaved by sin. So what's this old self, or this old man, or this old person that he's talking about? I think he's talking about our connection to Adam. That's the old us. He's talked about this from chapter 5. When we're in Adam, prior to conversion, prior to coming to Christ, that's the old us, the old man, the old self. And in Adam, we inherited this sentence of guilt and condemnation so that we deserve to die. And that old person had to meet its rightful end. It had, to do, it had to take that sentence of condemnation. And Paul's point is that when we're joined to Jesus Christ, that old person that we used to be has been crucified. It has met its rightful end. The judgment of death has been passed upon us. And so what took place at the cross is that our old self with its sin and self-interest has been put to death. This then means that the body of sin, the body ruled by sin, Who we were as embodied people dominated by sin has been done away with and rendered powerless. We are not that old person. We're we're new creatures in Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, Paul says in verse 6, we are no longer slaves to sin. Why? Verse 7 explains that it's because the one who has died has been set free from sin, or the word is justified from sin. That is, all the claims of justice against us have been met in our death with Christ so that we are set free. The condemnation of sin no longer hangs over us. All our guilt and condemnation is gone. The, do- the domination of sin over our lives has ended. 
And so verse 8 to 10 go on to explain that logically since we've died with Christ, then we're going to live with him. And since Christ has exited the, the realm of sin and death where it holds sway, we also have exited that old world of sin and death with Jesus Christ. Because after the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it says he, he never dies again. He isn't subject to sin and death. You remember Lazarus when the Lord Jesus Christ raised him from the dead. He died again. Not so with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ enters into a new sphere of existence where death has no more claims upon him. And that's the kind of existence that we share with Jesus Christ. In part. We're going to share it fully when we're raised from the dead, but we've already inter entered into that new life even now. Now, what Paul says here is, is dense. I acknowledge that. There's bits of his argument that even I'm not fully convinced I've, I've grasped. I'll be wrestling with this for the rest of my life to understand what Paul's saying. But his basic point is clear, that who we were has died with Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have moved from this realm of sin and death with Jesus Christ into a new life with God where sin and death has no more influence upon us. And because of this, we can no longer continue to sin. Ah, but you say, Andrew, I do sin. It's, it's a fact of my existence. And sometimes I feel that sin has got the upper hand in my life. Sometimes I feel that sin is dominating me. So how can it be true what Paul says here that sin has no more dominion over us? That we're no longer enslaved to sin? Surely this must be the, the claim of some special Christians. The claim of some spiritual Christian. There must be something more because I know what it's like to to have sin beat me again and again in life. But Paul, as we remember, he isn't saying this is for special Christians. He's saying that this is for every Christian. That's why he's talked about their baptism. In the first century, every Christian was baptized. It was one and the same thing. And he says that whoever you are, if you're baptized, you're joined to Jesus Christ. And all that is true of Jesus Christ is true for you. The old life has ended, the new life has begun, and you're no longer under the dominion of sin. This is true for you whether you feel it or not. I'll give you an example of that. Back in America, when slavery was ended, the announcement was made that slavery had been finished across the United States of America. The next morning, all the slaves would have woken up and they might have heard about this announcement that they'd been set free. They, they were no longer slaves. But doesn't the old master show up and tell them that they have to go to work as usual? And what do they do? They've got nowhere to go. They've got no home to go to. They've got no jobs to go to. And so they end up just sticking and doing the same old thing again and again until eventually the reality of their freedom gets a hold of them and they actually manage to break free. It's a bit, it's a rough illustration. The point is that when the announcement was made that they were set free, they were free. 
There was no doubt about it, no question about it. But that only became true in their experience when they actually began to live in the reality of that. That's true for us as well. Because even though we have died to sin, sin, our old master, hasn't died. And he'll still show up every morning telling us that he's in charge here. That he's the one who calls the shots and you ought to do what he says. And the problem then is that we find ourselves struggling with who to believe. Do we believe that voice of sin that says to us that actually we're still under the dominion of sin and we can't escape? Or do we believe what God tells us in his word that the dominion of sin has been broken? Its condemnation is gone. Your obligations to live that way of life are gone. You can live a free life now in relationship to God and enjoy that new life. So the question, the question is, whose, life, whose voice will we listen to? And so the, que- the issue here isn't whether or not we sin, because there will be times when we sin. The question is, whose reign are we under? And what Paul says, if we're joined to Jesus Christ, we're not under the reign of sin and death. So, how do we live? Last point. Paul explains it in verse 11 and following. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And the key words here are in each of the verses. Verse 11, he says, consider it to be true. Reckon this to be real in your life. Verse 12, let not sin reign. Don't let it reign anymore. And verse 13, present yourselves to God. Present yourselves to God. That's what you've got to do. So firstly, he says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because if what Paul has been saying in this passage about us being dead with Christ and alive with Christ in his resurrection, if what he's saying about us not being under the reign of sin anymore, and if what he says about our links to Adam being broken are true, then we need to bank on it. We need to consider it to be true we need to reckon it this is real in our lives and so the most important step for us then is to recalibrate our sense of who we are because we are not the people that we used to be we are new people we are in union with Jesus Christ secondly Paul says let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions see we still live in our mortal bodies this side of the resurrection mortal bodies we will die it's not the penal consequences of of sin the penalty of sin has gone yet living at this point in time before the lord comes we will die unless the lord comes that's why we've got mortal bodies but one day that full effect of our mortality will be removed 
and we will never die as we share in Christ's resurrection. And yet these mortal bodies that we presently have, they belong to God. They're not the possession of sin. They're not the possession of Satan. Uh, this is what Paul says about the body ruled by sin has been done away with. Our bodies now belong to God. And so Paul has presented us with the reality that we're, we're not enslaved to sin. Sin is not our master. And we need to live that out in our mortal bodies. And so sin comes to us. And it appeals to our physical desires, our desires for ease, our desires for pleasure. It appeals to us by presenting attractive things to us and it, doesn't hide, it hides the consequences. And yet when we indulge in sin, the consequences are painful for ourselves and for others. And so sin tries to lure us back through its attractions and temptations. And what we need to do is have the courage to say... Sin is not my master anymore. Sin is not the boss. I'm not under the dominion of sin, and I'm not going to let it have control here. You see, this was the case for the, the Israelites. Sometimes they wanted to go back to Egypt. They thought, oh, it's going to be better back in Egypt. We had our leeks and our onions and our garlics and all the food that they enjoyed, and they wanted to go back to that. And the same way, we'll be lured back into that old life. But Paul says, no, you don't need to sin. You stop sin from reigning in your life. It's not your master anymore. And so thirdly, he says in verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So the question is, who do we give ourselves to? We've got all of our members, the parts of us, our physical bodies, our mind, our abilities, all of these parts of us. What do, who do we give them to? Because previously we used to give them over to sin just to do whatever he, sin wanted to do, to indulge in the things that would cause destruction to us and to others. And Paul says, don't do that. Give yourselves to God. Recognize that you've entered into this new life where you owned by God and present yourselves to him every day present yourselves to him and ask God to use you in his service so Paul then concludes with his summary in verse 14 he says for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace okay so then it gets a little bit tricky again because he's been talking about sin and death and now he talks about law. And we think, so what's the connection between not being under law and being free from sin? Clearly he doesn't mean that we don't have to follow any instructions anymore because he's already given us some instructions here such as present yourselves to God. That's a command if there ever, if there ever was one. What Paul is saying here is, is not that there's no more instructions for us to follow. Rather, what he means is that we're no longer under the era where law was the, the principle that God ruled by as the means of enforcement. Under that age where people were dominated by sin, God brought in the law to tell people not to sin and highlighted what they ought not to do. 
But the problem is that that just exacerbated the problem, it just highlighted the problem and made people even more guilty because they kept on doing those things. So we needed to be delivered from that age of law where we were under the law and brought into the era of grace where we actually have the motivation to do what God asks us to do. So it's not that the instructions have suddenly made a radical shift, it's the ability to do what God wants has changed. And so under grace what we find is that we have the motivation and the ability to obey God because he has cancelled our sin and through his love poured into our hearts has motivated us to obey him, not to win something from God, but because we have been accepted by God. And that acceptance, that grace is what we build on. That's what motivates us to live a life pleasing to God rather than under the dominion of sin. And that's why Paul says that we're not to be dominated by sin because we're under grace, not under the law. And so Paul, he's tackled this question head on of whether or not God's superabounding grace actually allows us to sin. And he says it doesn't because God's grace is not just a forgiving grace, which it is. It's more than that. It's a liberating grace. It sets us free from what we used to be dominated by. God's grace, it joins us to Jesus Christ in his death, unites us to Jesus Christ in his resurrection, and we live out a new life. And this is encouragement to us because no matter how beaten and battered by sin that we might feel, the point is this is true for us. We have been set free from sin. We're not under its dominion anymore. And because we're not under its dominion, we can live like it. We can live in the freedom that God has given to us. And if we are Christ's, then sin will not have the last word in our lives because the reign of sin has been broken and the fruit of grace through God's spirit will reveal itself in our lives and we will become the people that God wants us to be as we present ourselves to him in his service. So may God help us then to reckon these things to be true and to present ourselves to God in his service. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this message of freedom and deliverance from sin that we receive from you. 